Father, you are holy. You are Lord God Almighty. And you have done wonderful things for us, and we praise you. We look forward to that day when Jesus comes again as well, as we sing about that glorious day. But God, until that day, we pray for your strength, that we might keep going. Would you help us now? Would you encourage our hearts and our souls? Would you strengthen us through the power of the Holy Spirit as we open your word now? We give ourselves to you, God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We're continuing our walk through the book of Romans. In fact, we are ending our walk through the book of Romans today. It's the last chapter, chapter 16, and we're going to do all of it today. Although we will do a conclusion next Sunday where we'll look at the book as a whole, but we're actually finishing up this walk. Has it felt like a marathon to anybody? It was uh, four months last summer, and then we had a nice break, which I'm sure if I ran a marathon, I would take a break somewhere in the middle too. Uh, And then we did about four or five months this summer as well. Uh, But it's been a long walk through the book of Romans, kind of like a marathon. And in many ways, the Christian life is kind of like a marathon. That is certainly not an analogy that I came up with on my own. Many people have used it in the past. But I think it's a good one, that, that the Christian life is like a marathon. Uh, both the Christian life and a marathon require endurance. You don't just go all out after it in mile number one, um, although in, as Christians we should continue to walk with fervor in our spiritual walk with God, but uh, it requires endurance. It requires for us to keep the end goal in mind. And the end goal for us as believers is wonderful. It's, it's eternity with God. It's like the end goal at a marathon is pretty cool too. You, you get to stop running. I think that's fun. Um, <laughs> But we have to remember the goal. I, I've never run a marathon. I have run 10 miles. That, that was the longest I've ever run. But boy, I needed to keep the goal in mind at the end there. It's like, this is, yes, okay, we're doing this for a reason. And it will end. And as Christians, what will never end is our relationship with God. But we do need to keep the, the end goal in mind, which the end for us is eternity with God. And we need to keep that in mind as we keep going because have any of you ever felt in your Christian life like it's been hard to keep going? Have any of you ever lacked endurance at times? Okay, thank you. Thank you. All right, good. Okay. And more, more, I see a hand in the back there. All right. Uh, have any of you ever felt tempted to take a different path? There, there's a story of a gal who was running a marathon. I think it was the New York Marathon. And, she got in a taxi cab partway through and told the taxi to drive her to another point in the marathon. And anybody here ever been tempted to say, you know what, this Christian life right now is maybe a little bit difficult or it's not meeting my expectations and I'm maybe tempted to go a different path? I think that we all need encouragement as we keep going because um, the end may not be for a while. It may be sooner than we expect, but it may not be for a while. And we need to keep going. The Apostle Paul knew about as well as anybody else that the Christian life could be a struggle. He wrote of his struggles in other books of the Bible. Uh, But he also wrote to encourage believers to keep going. And I think that Paul knew how important it was to have each other, that we would encourage each other to keep going. So here, at the end of his letter to the church at Rome, he writes what I think is an encouraging chapter. It's a very personal section of the book of Romans. In fact, it's so personal that we might be tempted to think that it's not even for us. It wasn't written to us, but it was written for us. That's one of the ways, one of the 
sayings I believe about the Bible is that this church was written, written to the people at Rome, but it was written for us to see, and there are things that we can learn. So yeah, we might be tempted to look at this list of names of people that we've never met and barely ever heard of and, and say, well, that's not for me. But the truth is there are things in here that, that we can look at that stand as wonderful examples for us of how we can keep going and how we can encourage others to keep going in our Christian walk. So overall, that's kind of the theme of chapter 16 here, is that Paul wanted to encourage the believers to keep going. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to break down this section into four parts. And in those four parts, we're going to see a reminder about how we can keep going or how we can encourage others to keep going. Um, so the first part, and my, my titles today, they're not very clever, I apologize. They're just more descriptive. The first part is Paul's greetings to Rome and, and uh, and we'll see that in verses 1 through 16. So this is over half of the chapter, but we'll just read it now. And it's a long list of names. And most of this didn't make it into your bulletin just for space purposes, but uh, I'll read verses 1 through 16. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church in Cancrea. I ask you to receive her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and to give her any help she may need from you. For she has been a great help to many people, including me. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. They risked their lives for me. Not only I, but all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. Greet also the church that meets at their house. Greet my dear friend Eponidas, who was the first convert to Christ in the province of Asia. Greet Mary, who worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junius, my relatives who have been in prison with me. They are outstanding among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. Greet Ampliatus, whom I love in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my dear friend Stachys. Greet Apelles, tested and approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my relative. Greet those in the household of Narcissus, who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphena and Tryphosa, those women who work hard in the Lord. Greet my dear friend Persis, another woman who has worked very hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and his mother, who has been a mother to me too. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobas, Hermas, and the brothers with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nereus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ send greetings. So there are 27 names listed in this passage, and in some ways, doesn't it kind of just feel like you're watching a marathon, and you're like, hey, there goes Apelles, hey, there goes Tryphena, go, guys, way to go. Um, it kind of reminds me of the time that I watched a marathon uh, in Fargo. The Fargo Marathon went right past Christine's parents' place. So we got out our lawn chairs and watched the marathon, which if you're going to be involved in a marathon, that's what I would recommend personally. But, um, but you know, it's like all these people going by, the, the, most of them we had never met. And every once in a while, I'd be like, hey, I know you, way to go. But for the others, we just kind of cheered and clapped. And there were people lining both sides of the streets, cheering and clapping for these people. And we just saw them for one brief snippet of their 26.2-mile run, or, or 13.1 if they were doing a half marathon. Uh, but it was kind of fun. And it, we were just there to encourage them as they went. So that's kind of what Romans 16 feels like to me in a way. We're just kind of cheering for these people as they go along. But let's take a quick look at some of the names in this list. We're not going to look at all of them, and we don't know much about a lot of them other than the fact that their name is written here. Uh, but there's a few that I do want to point out. Um, of the 27 names listed, apparently 26 of them lived in Rome. The only exception here is Phoebe. So she was the one who it says that she was a servant from the church in Cancrea. The word servant, by the way, can mean deaconess. It's possible that she had an official position in the church there. 
And Cancria was a port near Corinth. So most people assume that the, the letter to Rome was written by Paul at Corinth. And it's very possible that Phoebe took this letter of Romans to the church in Rome. Uh, but, but Paul was basically writing a letter of recommendation for her. Apparently, she had important work to do, and Paul wanted the people of Rome to know that, hey, you can trust this Phoebe, and not only can you trust her, but you should assist her on her way, give her any help that she might need. So Paul, Paul valued this woman's service and wanted the church to value her as well. Okay, the next two names on the list are Priscilla and Aquila. This couple is uh, one of the more famous ones on the list. They're mentioned several places in the Bible. In one place in the Bible, we see that they had a really important teaching ministry as they taught people about Christ. Uh, Paul says here that they risked their lives for him and that all the churches of the Gentiles are grateful to them. And in verse 5, we also we see that a church met in their house. So they really gave themselves to the work of the gospel, and Paul wanted to greet them, wanted to encourage them. Okay, skipping down to verse 7, we see Andronicus and Junius. This is perhaps another married couple, and there is some debate about this, and I do just want to mention this debate because some of you might be keyed into it. Uh, there's a debate over whether Junius was a man or a woman. Now, we don't know... Um, if, if, if she was a woman, it's very possible that this was a married couple. Uh, but what's interesting there is it says that Andronicus and Junius were outstanding among the apostles. Now, the controversy in this comes over uh, if Junius was a woman and also an apostle, some people wonder, well, what does that mean? There's this whole argument over women in ministry, and I don't really want to get into the entire argument here. I do just want to say a couple of things here about it, though. Uh, and I'll give you my conclusion first. I think that the best way to understand this is that Junius was a woman and that she was an apostle, although I would say apostle with a small a. Jesus had 12 apostles, right? He, he designated those 12 to be with him and to learn from him and to do ministry. Later on, Paul was added to that list and James was added to that list. Those are the ones that we would call apostles with capital A. But there were other apostles in the Bible as well. And the word apostle just means sent one. So I think that Andronicus and Junius were apostles and that they were sent with a job to do in working for the gospel. And in that sense, I, have, there, I don't think there's any problem whatsoever that, that Andronicus and Junius were apostles, even if Junius was a woman. And on that note, I want to say a little bit more about women in ministry, uh, and just women in general. Of the 27 names listed here, if Junius is a woman, 10 of them are women. Uh, like I said, Junius is called an apostle. Uh, an, uh, a possible? No, she was called an apostle. Um, four others of them are said to have worked hard or very hard. So not only were women a significant portion of the church in Rome, just numbers-wise, but they were doing significant work for the church. They were actively engaged in ministry. And it's sad to me that in our, in our day and age, Christianity sometimes gets a bad rap as a religion that holds women down. Because the opposite was true in Paul's day and in Jesus' day. You see, Christianity was actually, in many ways, a very liberating religion for women. Uh, other religions in that day often wouldn't allow women even to join in public worship. So not only do we have women in public worship here, we have women doing important work in the church. And I think, in that sense, the Bible actually uplifts women very, very much. Um, same thing could be true of Jesus' ministry. Jesus had a bunch of women who followed him. 
Sometimes we think of his 12 disciples or 12 apostles who followed him, but there were a bunch of others. And specifically, if you read the Gospel of Mark, who is it that was left with Jesus at the cross? All the men, most of the men, we we maybe see some other snippets from the other Gospels, but most of the men, as we see in the Gospel of Mark, kind of ran away, scared. And the women were there with him at the cross. So I, I think the Bible actually has a very high value for women. And maybe we as the church get that wrong sometimes. And truth be told, there is this debate. And, and I will say this. Uh, I do believe that there are some restrictions placed on uh, women in ministry in the Bible. For example, I think that the role of elder is just for men. However, having said that, the Bible is full of times when women can and have and should serve in ministry. You see, every Christian who knows Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord is supposed to serve. Those who serve are engaged in ministry. And in that sense, women should be actively involved in ministry. And I would hope that you women feel encouraged here and in in general in the body of Christ to use your gifts the way that God has called you to use them because you are valuable to us, at least as valuable as men. Let me just say it that way. So... um, I think that Christianity really, when understood rightly, has a high value of women. And I think, I think that women should recognize that this is exactly what they were created for, to know Christ and to serve him in these ways. And it's not just women that Christianity has a high view of. It's also the lower class. I wouldn't have known this on my own, but in this list of names here, we see a bunch of people who were from the lower class. In Christ, it doesn't matter what social status is. It doesn't matter if you're from the lower class or the middle class or the upper class. Any one of us can serve our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what we see a picture here of in Rome, is people from all sorts of different classes. And Paul encouraged them all and congratulated them all as serving the Lord. Okay. Um, One more name I just want to point out quickly. I, I just like this one, verse 10. Greet Apelles tested and approved in Christ. There was just something about him. Somehow Apelles had gained a reputation as somebody who was tested and approved. That word means that if you were to look at him, if you were to investigate his life, you would see something noteworthy or praiseworthy about the way that he lived. And I just thought, what was it about him that made Paul just say, that guy is tested and approved? And I just thought, may it be true of us. May we be people who are tested and approved in Christ. But overall, these greetings to the believers in Rome show people who worked hard, who set a good example, who used their gifts and even their homes to serve God and to love the family of believers. It's a wonderful sampling of how the church should work. And it just made me think, what if somebody wrote a letter to the church of Fergus Falls or specifically even to the people of Cornerstone? What would be said about you? And and just kind of put a smile on my face to think this week that, you know, maybe they would pick out some of you and saying, way to go, you have encouraged the saints. Or way to go, you have opened up your home. Or way to go, you have encouraged people to study the Bible. You've shown wisdom. Or way to go, you have loved the family of believers. You have served those people in need. And I think that there are a bunch of you out there that could be picked out, just like the list of people here that were picked out, and could be encouraged. So... I think by way of application here, um, actually before we get to application, I want to I give you one more encouragement. Sometimes I think that we in the church feel like our, our service goes unnoticed. 
Do you ever feel like that? Do you ever feel like you're doing things and maybe your service is going unnoticed? Well, look at this. It wasn't just Paul who noticed this. This is scripture. God himself noticed the people on this list and what they were doing. And God will notice us. In Hebrews 6.10 it says, God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. I'm encouraged by that. God sees what you do to work for him. Let's continue to work for him. I bet these people here were encouraged as Paul wrote this list. Uh, I bet they're like, hey, wow, thanks Paul. I'm glad you noticed. And it makes me think, here's what we should do for application. Uh, Who will you encourage? If the Christian life is like a marathon, that means that there are a lot of people out there who are struggling, who are wondering how they can go not even just the next mile, but the next step. Who will you encourage? Paul made a point here at the end of his letter to encourage people. Who will you encourage? We're in this together. It can be easy for us just to think about ourselves, but let's think about others. There was a guy when I was in cross country, during our practices, he'd always be talking to us. And at first I was like, how can this guy talk? I don't have any extra energy to do anything, and he's using his energy to talk to us. But but I just realized that he was trying to encourage us. He was trying to make that that practice more enjoyable for all of us. Me, I was just thinking about myself and how much pain I was in, and he was thinking about other people. Let's be like that other guy who's thinking about others around us. We all have our own difficulties, but let's not get so concerned about them. Let's think about others around us and encourage them. Okay, second point here today is a warning. I want to read verses 17 through 19 to start this out. I urge you, brothers to watch out for those who cause divisions and put obstacles in your way that are contrary to the teaching you have learned. Keep away from them, for such people are not serving our Lord Christ but their own appetites. By smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the minds of naive people. Everyone has heard about your obedience, so I am full of joy over you, but I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. So, Um, the illustration here is if I'm at my in-laws place again watching that marathon and let's say that I know that on the next block there's a bunch of potholes I might just say to some of the runners as they're going by careful for the next street you might want to go on the sidewalk there's a bunch of potholes or maybe I just have a sign watch out for potholes or something like that we just need to be reminded uh, warned about what's coming out there and apparently according to verse 17 there were people in Rome who were causing divisions and even putting obstacles in these believers way These things were contrary to the teaching they had learned. These people weren't interested in serving Christ. They were interested in their own appetites, just in themselves. And they they might have sounded convincing with their smooth words. But be warned. There are people out there, even today, around us. Maybe you hear them on the radio or on TV or maybe from a different church. There are people who would distract us or people who would put obstacles in our way, or people who would teach false teachings, and we, like it says in verse 17, should keep away from them. But then I have a question. How do we know? How do we know the difference between a true teacher and a false teacher? That's just, it, it's not like they walk around with a sign on their head saying, I'm a false teacher. Uh, how do we know the difference between a true and a false teacher? Well, look at the end of verse 19. Paul says, I want you to be wise about what is good and innocent about what is evil. That's discernment. Discernment is something that God will give us. If we sincerely seek him, 
He will teach us the difference between what's good and what's evil so that we can embrace what's good and reject what's evil. It is so important for us to have that. We don't just automatically come into this world with this sermon. We kind of think we do. We, have you ever noticed how we always just seem to know what's best? Like, just ask me. I'll tell you. I just know what's best. Uh, even a kid, you ask them. They know what's best. But you know what? We don't always know what's best. We need to keep seeking God and trust that he will give us the discernment that we need so that we can reject what is evil. We can be innocent about it. And then we can keep away from those false teachers. So a couple of application points here. First one, find good teachers and learn from them. Now I hope that I'm one of those good teachers, not in the sense that I'm like super interesting. I hope I'm interesting. But even more than that, I hope that I handle God's word correctly. And I hope that you have figured out over the years to, how to tell the difference between a good one and a bad one. But the, the application here isn't just to find good teachers. The application is to learn from them. Listen to them. That, that might mean going to one of our small group Bible studies. I, I recommend the, the men who lead those studies. I recommend them to you as people who can teach God's word to you. So find good teachers and learn from them. And then second, be obedient to Christ. God will give you discernment. God will walk you through this process of helping you know what's good and what's evil. And one reason it's so important for us to be obedient to Christ is because we have an enemy. And I want to go on to verse 20 now. Still in the warning section here. Uh, The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus be with you. We have an enemy who hates us and wants our destruction. But God has a plan for Satan's defeat. Now it includes the cross, so praise the Lord, that part's already happened. But then God's plan also includes eternal punishment in the lake of fire. That is the place designed for Satan and his angels and for all who reject Jesus. So God has a plan to to finish off his punishment for Satan. But as we wait for that punishment, Satan does still have some power to deceive us now. But praise the Lord, through the cross of Christ, those of us who give ourselves to Jesus Christ, who put our faith in him, we know that Satan doesn't have the power to destroy us. Okay? There's a key difference there. He has the power to deceive us, but in Christ he does not have the power to destroy us. So, what I mean then, I just by way of reminder here, please put your faith in Christ. You, by yourself, are not stronger than Satan. But, If you give your life to Jesus Christ, God will rescue you from his power because Jesus has won the victory over sin and death and Satan. So when it says that God will soon crush Satan, we're reminded of that ultimate victory. And that victory was first foretold to us in Genesis 3.15, which I was reminded of when I read this verse in Romans 16.20. Now, uh, we're going to do a little short theological side trip here, okay? So this is for those of you that love to put on your theologian's hat, love to sharpen your pencil and write notes. Um, It's also for those of you single men out there who are trying to impress a lady with the theological term. So guys, you see a a righteous Christian babe, try this one. Hey, you ever heard of the Proto-Evangelion? There you go. It's guaranteed to do something. Um, But... uh, Proto-Evangelion, there's your theological word for the day. Proto just means first, Evangelion means gospel. So uh, most theologians that I read recently agree that Genesis 3.15 is what we would call the Proto-Evangelion. It is the first foreshadowing of the gospel. Do you remember what was happening in Genesis 3? 
God had told Adam and Eve not to eat from the, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. The serpent came up and deceived Eve, and Eve ate from it. Eve gave it to Adam, and Adam ate from it. God punished Adam and Eve, but he also punished the serpent. In fact, he punished the serpent first. And as part of the punishment there, this is what God said to the serpent. Let me put this up here. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He, the offspring of the woman, which is who? Jesus. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. So in there we see that the serpent will strike the heel of the woman's offspring, Jesus. We, that's what happened at the cross. Jesus died, and as part of it, they put nails through his feet. It was a striking of the heel. And it, you know what? It worked. Satan had this plan to kill Jesus. Do you remember what it said about Judas when he left the room to, to be, betray Jesus? Do you remember what it said? It's eerie. It said Satan entered him. So Satan had this plan to kill Jesus, and he did it. But uh, it's only called a wound to his heel because we know the end of the story. Three days later, Jesus rose again victorious. And in this verse, it also says that he, the offspring of the woman, will crush your head, the serpent. So we see that Jesus strikes the the more fatal, more fatal, the entirely fatal blow to Satan. That there is eternal punishment for him. And I love this about Genesis 3. The moment when paradise was lost for humanity. God came with punishment, but before he came with punishment, he gave us this little thread of the gospel. This, this foreshadowing of the good news that we would be rescued through the offspring of the woman, through Jesus Christ. Okay, so God is going to finish his plan. He's already started it. Jesus rose again. Satan's doom is sure. We don't have to live under his tyranny. We need to be aware of it, though, because he still has the power to deceive. But instead of living underneath the tyranny of Satan, we can live, like it says, in the grace of our Lord Jesus. But just be careful. Our enemy is out there. Okay. Moving on, point number three, greetings from Corinth. Like I said, this letter was probably written from Corinth. I don't know that with 100% certainty, but it all seems to line up. Um, okay, verses 21 to 23. Timothy, my fellow worker, sends his greetings to you, as do Lucius, Jason, and Sosipater, my relatives. I, Tertius, who wrote down this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, whose hospitality I and the whole church here enjoy, sends you his greetings. Erastus, who is the city's director of public works, and our brother Quartus, send you their greetings. Okay, I don't have much to say about these verses, just a few quick things. First, these verses show again the value of fellowship. Uh, we see many times in Paul's letters how he valued fellowship with Timothy. We see it here. In 1 Timothy 1-2, he called him his true son in the faith. I pray that God will bless us with fellowship like that. People with whom we can lock arms and serve Christ together with. May God strengthen us to have that kind of fellowship with each other. As we keep our eyes on Christ, he puts people around us that are like-minded. And then look at Gaius. He's a guy who opened up his house. God gave him a house that was big enough to host people, and he used it to host a church there. It's a wonderful example. Let's use what God has given us for his glory and his purposes. And then lastly, just a quick note about Erastus. I want to read a note that's in my study Bible here. It says, Paul was writing from Corinth where his friends included the city's director of public works. At Corinth, archaeologists have dug up a block of stone that may refer to this man. It bears the Latin inscription, Erastus, commissioner of public works, bore the expense of this pavement. 
I just think it's kind of neat. One time of many, many, many times that archaeology has shown things in the Bible to be just as they said they were in the Bible. Just, I just find that to be neat. Okay, so all of these people sent their greetings to encourage the believers in Rome. Application point here, same one I asked before. Who will you encourage? Some of you probably have the gift of encouragement. Um, some of you probably just love this. And I would encourage you, keep using that gift. God puts something on your mind, encourage the way that God leads you to. Now what if you don't have that gift? Well, you're not off the hook. We all should encourage each other, okay? You might have to do it uh, kind of against your own will. You might hear the gears kind of scraping as you're going from one to the next, but uh, do it anyways. Let's encourage each other. Okay, and then we're going to end with a benediction. Uh, just a Latin word meaning blessing. Verses 25 to 27. Now to him who is able to establish you by my gospel and, by the pro- and the proclamation of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery hidden for long ages past, but now revealed and made known to the prophetic writings by the command of the eternal God, so that all nations might believe and obey him, to the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. So far, this chapter has been about Paul and his companions encouraging the people in Rome, but now we see somebody even stronger encouraging them. God himself. In verse 25 there, it says that God will establish them through the gospel. (coughs) The word establish is just a word that means to make strong or to make firm. So think about that. God himself is at work to establish, to make us strong and firm. And how does he do it? Through the gospel. I've said it several times in this series, and I'm going to say it again. The gospel message is not only the message of salvation for you. It's not only the message of how you receive Jesus Christ and get complete forgiveness of your sins. It is that, but it is also the message of how God continues to strengthen us. You see, we don't graduate from our need for the gospel. It's not like we receive the gospel at one point in our life, and then we go on to something else. No, we are to continue in the gospel because God can continue to strengthen us us and make us firm through the gospel. So may we continue to be gospel people. Let's remind each other, let's proclaim it, but let's also live in the gospel because God will strengthen us as we keep going. And according to verse 26, the gospel isn't just for us either. The gospel is to go to the nations. We talked a lot about that last week. But God wants all nations, all people groups to hear the gospel. He wants all the people around you to hear the gospel too. Your friends, your co-workers, your neighbors, your classmates, your family, even your enemies. May the gospel go forth from us to them so that all the nations might know God. <coughs> Excuse me. And then it's interesting what kind of response God is looking for to the gospel. Usually, in Romans, we would say, well, in response to the gospel, God wants us to have, what's the word? Faith. Yeah, that's, Romans is it just all over the word faith. And we're, we are supposed to respond by giving our lives to Jesus, by trusting in him. That's what I think the word faith means. To say, God, you're God and I'm not, so I give my life to you. I, I actually make that choice to give myself to you so that I follow you. That's what faith is. And that's what we're called to do so often in Romans. But here, in, in the end, it's not just faith. The, the phrase is literally the obedience of faith. It's the same phrase that Paul used in chapter 1, verse 5. So at the bookends of Romans, a, a 
book which is mostly about faith, it's bookended by the obedience of faith. So we have to put our faith in Jesus, but we should also obey him. How will we know if we have faith in Christ? Well, uh, Paul has said it, James has said it, it's by what we do. Oftentimes it's our, our actions of obedience that show that we have faith. True faith will show itself in our obedience. Application question, how is your obedience? Are you doing the things that you know that God wants you to do? Or let me ask it another way. Are you not doing the things that God asks you not to do? And then one more question on that. How are you at repenting? When God points out a sin in your life, how quickly do you give that to him? I I think that one of the, the main differences between a Christian who's walking with God and somebody who's just pretending is that those people who, when they become aware of their sins, repent of them, are the ones who are truly walking with Christ. So how are you doing it? Obedience. Now let me just say this. If you're not doing well right now, don't beat yourself up. The response would simply be faith and obedience. You can, in repentance right now, just talk to God and say, God, I am sorry because I have picked my own path. Any of you walking on your own path right now? Again, I'm not saying this to pick on anybody or to beat anybody up. I just want to warn you. Is, is anybody as you look at your life right now and you think about the path that God wants for you, have you kind of wandered from that and are just walking in your own path? Think about that word, obedience. Set your heart towards God and just talk to Him right now and say, God, I'm sorry. Help me to live my life for you on the path that you have picked out for me. You see, God wants to strengthen us, to establish us, and to make us firm. He will do that through the gospel. And who's the gospel for? Is it for perfect people or for sinners like you and me? It's for sinners. So let's go to God and let's ask for his strength to live the life that he wants us to live. Our part is to make up our minds to obey him and to continue to follow him by faith. God will give us what we need, so keep going. God will help you. And then finally here, I just want to put verse 27 up there again. To the only wise God be glory forever through Jesus Christ. Amen. It's fitting for the book of Romans to end with giving God glory because the gospel is such a glorious message. It is the message of salvation that God loves sinners like you and me so much that he sent Jesus for us. And he he loves us so much that he wants to sanctify us, to make us holy, to transform us, and to bring us to live with him forever. It is a wonderful message and our response should be faith, it should be obedience, it should be living for him, but it should also be that we would glorify him. That in what we say and do and think, we would praise and glorify the God who loves us so much. He is the only wise God. Let's glorify him. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you. Uh, for the wonderful news of the gospel message, for how you rescue us from sin and death, for how you strengthen us to live now, and for how you want us to live with you forever in eternity. God, would you please strengthen us to walk on that path that you have for us. And God, would you help us to remember to encourage each other along the way. Show us today, God, even a couple of people that we might be able to encourage and just to speak warm, kind words to them to help them along their way. And God, would you send people to encourage us as well. So God, we thank you. We glorify and praise you 
for the wonderful news of the gospel message which you have brought to us through your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.